Please open your Bibles to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. Um, it's a blessing to be back in the pulpit. And I was I'm very pleased to hear Daniel's teaching for the last two weeks. I know it may seem somewhat technical, but I assure you as we read the Psalms, it's, it's necessary to sink through these things, and in particular the Psalm titles and, and the arguments for their biblicity. I'm very thankful for Pastor Daniel's faithful teaching. Um, I was going to do um, issues in the Psalms part three, but thought better we'd do Psalm 97 instead. No Psalm title. Um, so just, it's, it's all clear. So we're going to read Psalm 97 and have a word of prayer and we will begin. <clears throat> the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. Lord God, as we study this psalm, and we look at your coming judgment, your coming rule, um, pray that you would give us eyes to see. Help us to take the poetic language seriously and to see with eyes of faith the terrible, awesome, and awful realities depicted. Help us to um, hate evil and, and love you and to find delight and joy in your judgments. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as we continue our study through the Psalms, a study that I'm planning to continue through this month, we are in Psalm 97, and in a subsection or a block within the book of Psalms, as Pastor Daniel pointed out, the arrangement of the book of Psalms, at its macro level, there are five books with clear dividing chunks and, and texts to make the divisions clear. Many see the parallel between the five books of the Psalms and the five books of Moses, but that's not certain. We're in a subsection here. Psalms 93 to 100 are sometimes referred to as the Yahweh Malach Psalms, or the, the Lord is King Psalms. And the theme in Psalms 93 through 100 are consistently on the rule of the Lord God, not just the rule of the Lord God over his people and over his land in Israel, but the, the global, the universal rule of Yahweh. Um, in fact, that phrase, the opening line, the Lord reigns, 
is found in Psalm 93, verse 1. How does Psalm 93 begin? The Lord reigns. How does Psalm 99 begin? The Lord reigns. And so we are in a section in the book of Psalms, a grouping of Psalms that focus on God's kingship, his sovereignty, his rule over creation. I've titled this morning's message, He Comes to Judge the Earth, which is, um, I believe, the theme of Psalm 97, even though that phrase is not found in it. Interestingly, that phrase is found in the verses just before it and in the psalm just after it. If you look at Psalm 96, verse um, 13, Actually, go back to verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in uprightness and the people's in faithfulness. And Psalm 98 ends in a similar way. Look at Psalm 98, verses 7, 8, and 9. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. I believe that sandwiched in between these two psalms that predict the Lord will come, we actually have a poetic description of God coming. I, I think that's what's going on in, in verses 2 through 5, uh, a depictured um, arrival of the living God, what theologians sometimes call a theophany. And so Psalm 97 fulfills the, the chorus, the, the cry, the desire of Psalm 96, Psalm 98. It says God will come to judge the world, and we see a picture of that judgment here in Psalm 97. The divisions of the psalm, I really wrestled with whether to put verse 6 as the end of the first section, the beginning of the second, and different commentators have divided it different ways. I, I settled with... One to six being a unit, but it, it could go both ways. But the psalm moves through three points. And through all three of these points, you're going to see as we look at God's coming judgment of the earth, it, it's a theme that has two distinct responses. Um, there is a theme of joy that accompanies God's judgment of the world. Rejoicing. I mean, we see that in the opening verses, don't we? The Lord reigns, let the earth Rejoice. How does the psalm end? Rejoice in the Lord. However, we also see, verse 4, the earth sees and trembles. We see in verse um, 6, I mean 7, the worshipers of image are put to shame. So there, there, is, there is a duality to God's coming. God's coming judgment of the earth is a cause for joy for some, Cause for rejoicing and hope, delight, and cause for fear and terror. And so if you want to, what, what's the psalm, what is the practical import of this psalm? The practical import of this psalm is get ready for the judgment of God on this world. You want to be in the group of people who are rejoicing or delighting. You don't want to be in the group of people who are consumed and devoured by fire. So that's, that's a big sort of overview, but we'll see those two tones 
Um, Psalm 97, I mean, Psalm 96 and Psalm 98 primarily focus on the, the delightful aspect of God's coming judgment. Psalm 97 kind of strikes that balance with both themes evident. The, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment will be a, a day for joy and a day for sorrow, a day for delight and a day for terror and trembling. We, we'll see both of those themes in this psalm. Let's, let's begin with our first point. The Lord will destroy all his adversaries. I just want to pause for a minute and just consider the global aspect of this psalm. There are times where the psalms deal with God's people only, with the people of Israel, but this psalm breaks those national boundaries. This psalm is emphatic in its universal tone. The judgment will be for all the world. The response is for all the world. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, Verse 4, the earth sees and trembles. Verse 5, before the Lord of all the earth. Verse 6, all the peoples see his glory. Verse 7, all worshipers of images. All you gods. Verse 9, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Do you get the, the global Emphasis of this psalm. This is not a psalm about Israel and her God. This is a psalm about the Lord of all the earth. This is a judgment that is global. And the response called for is equally global. In that global sense, the Lord will destroy all his adversaries. That's the focus of the first six verses. Now, the psalm begins with that proclamation that we looked at, the Lord reigns, and in some senses, this is the theme of the entire psalm. God rules on his throne. We get the majestic proclamation, the Lord reigns. And this is, a, this is truth that we need to hear again and again. Because we look at the news. We've had, what, two mass shootings now within 24 hours of each other reported? And it can look as though the world is in chaos, You can read the headlines. You can see the policies that are being passed. You can see the tensions in the world. You can see atrocities. And you might think this world is being subject to chaos. And there's a sense in which that's true. The God of this world is running around in his death throes. And in that context, God's people are to know there is a living God who is ruling right now. And despite what you see around you, despite what evidences you see in the newspapers, take confidence and respond with an emotional response of joy. Be certain there is a God who reigns. There is a living God who rules. And the emphasis is the Lord is ruling. He is reigning. It's not even that he will reign. There are some things he will do, but what he is doing even now is reigning. He is sovereign. He is a potentate. He is a king. And he is ruling. And that declaration, Yahweh rules, which is what dominates this chunk of the Psalms, is is emphatically repeated. And the emphasis of so many Psalms stacked up together is this is truth we need to deeply chew on and internalize. Because that means no matter what's going on, whether it's globally, nationally, in your family, whether it has to do with health, whether it has to do with employment, the state of your marriage, whatever, the Lord rules. The Lord reigns. And, and that 
demands then a response. So we get this majestic proclamation, the Lord reigns, followed by a response that's environmental and international. The environmental response, let the earth rejoice. And we saw in Psalm 96 and in 98 as well, this poetic language of inanimate objects rejoicing. I did not know that the uh, rivers had hands, but in Psalm 98, 8, the rivers clap their hands. The hills sing for joy. The truth, the living God rules, is meant to evoke joy, confidence, gladness from all of creation. And as far as we can tell, all creation obeys. Jesus, um, Jesus in, insists that the birds cry to God for their food, and he sees them, and he feeds them. So as far as I can tell, every part of the created universe does respond with joy, does respond rightly, except for, of course, you and I. The only part of God's creation that may not respond rightly to this declaration of God's rule is Man, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, and have no doubt the earth is rejoicing, and it will rejoice. It unfailingly proclaims God's glory. And then we get this international response called upon, let the um, many coastlands be glad. And from Israel's position along the edge of the sea, the many coastlands, again and again in Scripture, refer to the forest of far-off lands. And, and the picture would here be every nation, no matter how far off, every people, no matter how remote or obscure, in light of the Lord's rule of the universe, let us all, let them all, sing forth in joy and praise. In many respects, then, Psalm 97 serves as a warrant for worldwide missions. It is only fitting, it is only right, given the goodness and the greatness of this God who rules all of the earth, needs to respond rightly. John Piper has said that missions exist because worship does not. And, and what he means is missions exist to create worshipers of the living God. Missions exist that verses like Psalm 97.1 might be more greatly fulfilled. Let the many coastlands be glad. That's the theme, the Lord rules. So we're going to see aspects of his rule in just a moment. That's the, the big meta overarching theme. Yahweh, the Lord, rules. Let the living and the inanimate respond appropriately in joy and delight. This is also an invitation for you, no matter who you are, no matter from what tribe or people you come, you are invited, you are commanded to respond rightly, to delight and rejoice in this God. And even here we see the beginning of this picking of sides. There are, there are two responses to God's rule and judgment. There's those who respond in delight and joy and those who respond in terror and shame. And even here there's a, there's a call. Because the Lord rules, won't you rejoice? Won't you be glad. There's an invitation in this opening verse for all the peoples, the most remote coastlands, all of them, to respond to God's rule in joy and in delight. So we go from his majestic proclamation to his judicial presence. So what we get in verses two through five is a poetic description of the Lord God in person showing up in judgment. Let's read those verses. The clouds and thick darkness are all around him. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. So what do, we, what do we do of this description? We've got clouds and thick darkness, fire, lightnings, burning or melting mountains. And for anyone who's steeped in the Old Testament, the imagery being drawn upon is clear. Turn, turn back to Exodus 19. Turn to Exodus 19. This imagery, this, this conglomeration of descriptors um, are the same descriptions given when Israel came to Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant with the living God, when God um, indicated his presence there. Exodus 19, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. We got trembling. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. It's just an awesome state. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So when, when Israel met God at Sinai, what'd you have? You had darkness, clouds, thunder, a mountain shaking, fire. You have all the elements you have here. In fact, in, you can turn back to Psalm 97. In, in Deuteronomy 4, when Moses describes the same event, he used, again, highlights the same terminology. He reminds Israel how on that day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. So Israel has had an encounter where God, is, as, as much as he ever has, shows up in person. And when God shows up in person to meet with Israel, these are the descriptive effects. You get the, the, the darkness, the cloud, the fire, the lightnings, the mountains shaking. And so back in Psalm 97, the imagery is unmistakable. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. By the way, that's what the Lord reveals to Moses when he goes up on the mountain. The Lord, God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Fire goes out before him and burns up all his adversaries. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So your first blank, as at Sinai, as at Sinai. But that same imagery then, 
So if that's the antecedent, that's the past referent to God showing up, and the imagery is clear, when the Old Testament, and even we'll see in the New Testament, begins to predict God coming to judge the earth, the same imagery is used. So not only is this the imagery of Sinai, but also is on the day of the Lord. Listen to Zephaniah. Zephaniah. 1, 14 to 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of a trumpet blast and a battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. The prophet Joel, not Pastor Joel, but the prophet. They were contemporaries, I understand. But I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. The prophet Joel describes in similar terms the day of the Lord. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before. Nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. So this is the imagery First, God showing up in person to meet with Israel at Sinai. And second, when the prophets begin to predict the Lord coming in person to judge the world, it's the same type of language. Interestingly, remember when we were studying through Luke and that the the day turned dark at noon, I argued that is a picture of God showing up in judgment. There's, There's a consistency through all of this. And so what's being pictured here in these verses, I believe, is exactly what is called for at the end of Psalm 96 and the end of Psalm 98. It is the Lord coming to earth to judge the world in uprightness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That, I believe, is what is pictured here. I think the imagery would be unmistakable to anyone familiar with the Exodus account and with the prophet's predictions of what would come. And so I want to highlight um, then... Four, four truths, four points out of this judgment. The first, emphasized in this psalm, is that his rule is righteous and just. His rule is righteous and just. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And that reference to righteousness and justice is echoed again in verse 6. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. It's like a, it's like a sandwich of righteousness, and in, the, in between the sandwich, pieces of bread, is the judgment. And it's a way, I think, of the psalmist to emphasize to us that what we're about to see in this judgment is a righteous judgment. It's terrible. It's frightening. It's awful. It is good, right, and just. The Lord God does not overreact. He's not one of these capricious gods of the Canaanites who, who loses his temper. And again and again, he emphasizes this. Even now, we see how slow he is in his wrath, how patient he is. 
And when he set out to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he allows Abraham to negotiate with him, to intercede on their behalf. What if there are 50? What if there are 40? What? And again, showing, even as he prepares to do cataclysmic, jaw-dropping, shock and awe judgment, it's planned. It's reasoned. It is just. It is fitting. Righteousness and justice side by side like that represent righteousness. The Lord God always does what is right, what is fitting, what is appropriate, what is good. That's what it means that God is righteous. Justice is, is I think, the similar concept except applied to the another. The Lord God himself does what is right and his judgments are what is right, what is fitting. He only does himself what is good and right and true and honorable, and he only does to others what is given their state, good, right, honorable, and true. That is the foundation of his throne. We are to understand the judgment about to come, the the fire that consumes adversaries is fitting, is right, is good. The judgment that we await when he comes again is equally good, right, and fitting. That, That is emphasized here before we even get to it. His rule is righteous and just. His rule is righteous and just. Look back, that same emphasis in Psalm um, 96. In Psalm 96, we see um, verse, oh dear. 10, say to the Lord among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge the peoples fittingly, appropriately. Let the heavens be glad. The earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees in the forest sing for joy. The Lord comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness in the peoples in his faithfulness. His judgment, we're about to see, we're about to look at, is faithful, just, true, right, fitting. Let there be no confusion on that. And I'm glad that's set up first because next we're going to see his wrath is consuming. His wrath is consuming. Fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries all around. God has adversaries. God has enemies. You and I were all born his enemies, alienated, children of wrath. We oftentimes talk about um, salvation as having a personal relationship with God. Everyone has a personal relationship with God. The devil has a personal relationship with God. It's just not one of peace, but trust me, it's personal. And, And there are no people who are not having that relationship. They're either personally, individually, his enemies, his adversaries, his foes, personally at odds with him, personally in conflict with him, personally in opposition to him, or they are personally reconciled. But there is no third category of people who have nothing to do with the living God. The people here who are, who are not his redeemed are called his adversaries. It's a personal title. And he will consume them with his wrath. Fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. We're seeing a consuming wrath. We're seeing a terrifying power. 
This is an emphasis even not just in the Old Testament. People sometimes want to talk about that. Listen to the language of Luke chapter 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If, if you are the Lord's foe, if you're his adversary, if you are hostile to him in the thought, and indeed, this is the fate that awaits you, being consumed by his wrath. As the book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. And this is the, the, the dour note. This is the terrible note of his coming. This is the dread note of his judgment. Remember, the psalm invited you not to be in this group. The psalm invited you to rejoice at his coming. But if you will not, you will be consumed. His wrath is consuming. Next, his power is absolute. His power is absolute. Now, here we see an even greater display of God's power than at Sinai. Remember, at Sinai, the mountain merely quaked and shook and burned. Here, what do we read? The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. <laughs> I mean, that is just awesome power. Now, why, why single out the mountains? Because in their day, as in ours, the mountains are considered that which is immovable, that which is secure. Uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you know, in 1961, when our country, steeped in the, in, the, in the depths of the Cold War, wanted to make an impenetrable, safe, and secure military command, they, they hollowed out Cheyenne Mountain and put in what is called NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's, it's been restationed since 2008, but since its commissioning in 1967 through 2008, there was a military base in a mountain on shocks, it's amazing if you read about Cheyenne Mountain and NORAD. Um, the complex was built under 2,000 feet of granite on two hectares, that's five acres. Fifteen three-story buildings are protected from movement by a system of giant springs which stop the buildings from shifting more than an inch. It's the only complex certified to be able to withstand an electromagnetic pulse the bunker is built to deflect a 30-megaton nuclear explosion as close as two kilometers. The, the doors are 25 feet thick granite. And my point is that when we, concerned about nuclear holocaust, thought, where, where could we build something secure and safe? What If all else is destroyed, if everything else is removed, the cities are ash, where might we still be safe and secure? And the answer our government came up with, in the heart of a mountain. I suppose that's as good of a guess as any, right? That's where we built our most secure of secure sites. <laughs> to give you an idea of just how much weight and mass is in, say, Cheyenne Mountain. Cheyenne Mountain comes in just under 10,000 feet tall. And I found online someone who estimated the mass of a 10,000 foot tall mountain, assuming a 30 degree slope. I'll, I'll skip through the math. I've got a few Pastor Daniel because I know you'll be interested. But it works out to... <laughs> Given that granite weighs 170 pounds per cubic foot, the weight of a 10,000-foot-tall mountain with a 30-degree slope would come out to be roughly 2.6 times 10 to the 11th. It's 2.6 times 10 to the 11 zeros tons. That's, that's big. 
And when God shows up, Mount Cheyenne and the other mountains will melt away. They'll provide zero protection. That this is a picture of absolute, omnipotent, and unstoppable force. And it's just as powerful today as it was in their day. Don't miss over that. In our day, what is the most secure? What is the most unmovable thing we can think of to find shelter and refuge in? A mountain, it melts when the Lord God shows up. There is no battle when he deals with his foes. There's no strife. There's no conflict. He shows up and he wins and his enemies burn. The mountains melt away. His power is absolutely absolute. And his glory is seen by all in his judgments. Again, we get the second, the, this piece of bread on the other side of that sandwich of judgment. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. God's judgment of the world will be public, and it is righteous. It is fitting. If, if you struggle with, with seeing the fittingness of this, I suggest you do not have a sufficient understanding of the wickedness of sin, of the evil of sin. With the greatness of our God, but we need, we need to move on. The Lord will destroy all his adversaries. But second, the Lord will be exalted above all gods. The Lord will be exalted above all gods. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boasts and worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, we got to pick up pace a little quickly, but three points. First, we see now a pagan response. We've seen the earth called to respond. We've seen all the coastlands called to respond. Now we're going to see a pagan response, and it is uniform. It's shame. All, all worshipers of images are put to Shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Again, this ties in again with, with missions because we want to think that people who are far removed, people who haven't heard this message may have some excuse, they may have some exception made for them, but this psalm makes it clear, no, all who worship other gods, all involved in other religion, all of them will be put to shame. All of them will be disgraced. Every one of them. The Lord God is, is a jealous God for his glory. And when he comes, not only to destroy his adversaries, but all practitioners of false religion, all worshipers of other gods will be ashamed and debased. And again, it's not valid that there are real gods. But the, the picture is, just as he's the king of kings, he is the God of whom other gods should worship. Now, the Greek translation, a Greek translation of this um, Hebrew text puts it as angels. I think getting the New Testament thought that behind all false religion are demons. There could be that notion of view. But turn, turn to 1 Samuel 5. I could think of many illustrations in the Old Testament where God triumphs above other so-called gods. You could think of the exodus from Egypt where one by one the, the powers of the supposed Egyptian gods are, are brought devastatingly upon Egypt herself. Or you could think of the showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Or you could think of Daniel and the lion's den as he shows the power of his God over Nebuchadnezzar's 
gods. But one of my favorites is probably not as well known to you. Um, Early on in the book of Samuel, the ark goes on a pillaging raid of conquest by itself. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's worthless sons, bring the ark out as though it were a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, sort of like Indiana Jones, the army that carries the ark can never be defeated. Like, I don't know where they've been. Right here in 1 Samuel 4, they get defeated with the ark. The Philistines take the ark captive. They think they've won. No, they haven't. It's it's a remarkable story. As the ark gets passed from town to town, as nobody wants it, because whoever gets it, their people get tumors and they get rats. Eventually, they're going to send the ark back with gold, booty, and spoils of war on a cart. The ark's going to go mount a military campaign all on its own, defeating them. But I love, right here. So one of the places they put the ark for a while is a temple of Dagon, a fish god, as best as we can understand. 1 Samuel 5, 1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now the picture here is supposed to be, look how Dagon has defeated Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. He is, their, their, their special box is in Dagon's temple. It's, it's one of his um, indications of his triumph. Great is Dagon, that's something like that. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place, to which I, I think the Lord God already did that. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. God will be exalted above all false gods. He will be exalted above all false religions, above Islam, above Hinduism, above all. And again, we're being warned about this. And again, those who side with these gods, these religions, are choosing the side of shame and judgment. And again, this psalm invites in the opening verses, don't don't choose that side. Choose the side that rejoices in God and his judgments. But make no mistake, God does not believe, ultimately, in freedom of religion and religious tolerance. Those may be good principles while men rule the earth, but when he comes to judge and rule the earth, oh no. Oh no. Pagan response, all idolaters are put to shame. Then we see a faithful response in verse 8. Zion hears and is glad. So there's the other note. So there's people who are put to shame when he shows up. There are people who are put to shame when he's exalted above all gods. And there are those who are glad. The daughters of Judah rejoice. Why? Because of your judgments. Judgments like we've just seen in this psalm. Because of your judgments. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So we see the pagan response. Shame, ignominy. The faithful response is people rejoice in his judgments. And then again, you you should be vexed. You and I should be vexed by the proliferation of false religion. And we should rejoice and be delighted as we hear about the gospel going forth. These are the signs that, that correspond to God's people. A joy, a delight when they hear the Lord is exalted. The Lord, the God of the universe, the most high is triumphing over other false religions. We should as well, hear and be glad, rejoice. 
because of God's judgments. And then finally, we're given the reason for these two separate responses. Why is it that the worshipers of idols are put to shame? Why is it that the daughters of Zion and Judah rejoice? For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And again, notice the emphasis. He's higher than the highest. He's, he's loftier than the loftiest. He is greater than the greatest. He is the most high. That's a phrase, a title for God first used by Melchizedek in Genesis 15. The most high is exalted far above all gods. So however great you think Dagon is, however think you think um, Ishtar is, however you think great you think these gods are, he is far, far higher than them. Far higher than them. And that truth is a cause for joy and delight in God's people, and that truth is a cause for shame and ignominy in the nations around. And again, this is a theme that permeates this chunk of the Psalms. Look at Psalm 96, verse 4 or 5. Um, imagine, imagine praying this in one of those like National Day of Prayer meetings. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Let's pray. But the Lord made the heavens. This is a theme that God is going to not just do something in Israel. God is going to vindicate his holiness in the world. God is going to judge the world. He will smash the idols of the world. And lest you think, okay, we're here, we're not idolaters. The New Testament makes it clear in Ephesians 5, 5, there are other forms of idolatry that are not as overt. You may be sure of this, Ephesians 5, 5 says, every one of you is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. That is an idolater. There's no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So you can more subtly take your idols into your heart. And that same warning here would apply. God will smash idols. He will exalt himself above them. And either people will respond in shame or with joy. Again, the invitation is to be on the side that rejoices. That's what this psalm is throwing out universally, internationally. Which brings us then to our third point. The Lord will delight all his saints. And now we finally come to some application in the psalm. Up until this point, we've just been told what is and what will be. Now the psalm turns to the listener and exhorts action. We're going to look at it quickly in four points. First, we see in verse 10, O oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. There's the first application. Because of this glorious truth, the Lord reigns. The Lord will destroy all his adversaries. The Lord will be exalted above all gods. He will destroy all false religion. Settle that in your mind. Be certain of it. And because these things are true, hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil. You got to pick a side. Um, You got to pick a side. You can't love both. You can't love both. It's interesting that true love, here's your blank, true love involves true hate. True love involves true hate. It always does. If I love my wife, I'm committed to defending and preserving and protecting her, that puts me in opposition to every would-be threat against her. Right? My love for my wife necessarily puts me in opposition to, puts me at war with that which might threaten her. That's what my love does. A love for my wife that watches someone come by and beat her and take her away 
without a care in the world, because I love them too, and I love everybody, is meaningless, worthless, and only fit for greeting cards. No, if I love my wife, it demands hostility and opposition to the one who would attack her, right? For love of country, men go to war. And for love of the Lord God, we hate evil. That, that's the charge. And the temptation for us is we want to play around with both. I used to, I used to watch um, Star Wars. And I used to talk to my friend about how there's Luke Skywalker's kind of the goody two-shoes. He's just good. But everyone really liked Han Solo. Why? Because even though he's a good guy, he could appreciate a little bit of evil, right? We kind of gravitate. You don't want to be Luke Skywalker. You don't want to be Han Solo. No, you want to hate evil. You want to have nothing to do with it. And this then challenges us in our own lives because you'll talk to people about the things they watch, the things they read, the things they listen to, and I'll hear them tell them, I can discern, I can tell the difference, I, I, can, I, can, I can watch this because I understand that it's wrong. It's not enough to understand something's wrong. You're supposed to hate it. It is not enough to recognize that's wrong. You need to have an emotional response against it. You need to hate it. You need to not pay for and laugh at things for which Jesus died. Are you entertained? And, and this, come right back at me. I, at times I have to acknowledge I am. Are you willingly entertained and laugh at and will watch and anticipate and pay attention to things that God hates and for which Jesus died? Because in light of the coming judgment, we are called to hate evil. Not simply recognize it, not simply be able to distinguish between good and evil. Hate it. Hate, hate Hate it. It's a demonstration and an application of our love for God. That's, that's the application. I mean, it's, this is the application of the song. God reigns. He's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to vindicate himself among the gods and the nations. Therefore, be steadfastly loyal to him and hate that which is opposed to him. Pick a side. He gives further reason why we should pick a side and not waver, not try to have a foot in both camps. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of all the wicked. Of the wicked, the Lord guards and delivers his saints. The, the end is certain. The outcome is absolutely certain, and therefore we're called to live with a certainty and a lack of compromise and vacillation that is in keeping with that. You think of what uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They're placed with a fiery furnace, right? In, in Daniel 3, if this is so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but if not, it be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Our God can deliver us, they say. He may not. But either way, we're not worshiping your gods. We've picked our team and our side, and we will be faithful to him even as he has been faithful to us. And then point C, light and joy will dawn for the righteous. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. And the picture here is, is of the dawn. It's sown. I mean, something's sown, you don't see it, but it will pop up and spring forth. It's the picture of just before the dawn. You may think the light's going on forever. No, that the light has been sown and it will burst forth. It will spring up over the horizon. You get in here an implicit call to perseverance and patience. It's God's people who are not seeing at this moment his enemies destroyed, who are not seeing at this moment those who worship idols being ashamed, are taught to trust and hope and wait. It will come. It will come.
And then the psalm ends as it begins, a call for rejoicing. In verse 1, it was the earth and many coastlands. Here, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Give thanks to his holy name. Now, you can be righteous. Now, I want to make sure there's no confusion here. You can be righteous not through doing what is right, but in trusting in the one who was right. Um, You can be one of these righteous called to rejoice, not by the goodness and the faithfulness of your own life, which will always be flawed and worthless on its own, but by putting your face and your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who is righteous on our behalf. So the call that those who are righteous, it's not those who do good and those who are good enough. It's those who are righteous in God, in Christ. You can be on this team. You can be one who rejoices at his coming. You can be one who testifies that his judgments are right and are good by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to pause now and pivot as we to a time of communion. But I I think these, these themes intersect because our Lord told us that we celebrate this table until he comes. And when he comes, what will he do? He's coming to judge the world. And so until he comes to judge the world, we celebrate this meal. We give this sign again and again to remind ourselves and those watching that he is coming. I invite the ushers forward as we prepare for a time of communion. And as we do, I just want to, as they come forward, give you a moment to uh, prepare your hearts. Settle for yourself. Are you on the Lord's side? Are you committed to loving him and to hating evil? Or are you a worshiper of idols? Even now, you can change your allegiance. Even now, you can swear fealty to the God who is and will judge the world.